chapter 11, as we begin to look at this final plague, this final act of redemption on the part of God for his people, Exodus chapter 11, if you do not have a Bible, we want everyone to look on a Bible this morning. We will be on page 53 within the Bible that's provided for you in the front of your chair or somewhere around your chair. Page 53. Exodus chapter 3, verses 7 through 9, says this. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. And have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. And I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. We're not sure exactly how much time has elapsed between what we just read in chapter 3 to what we are going to read in chapter 11. But I think regardless of knowing how much time had transpired, we do know that nine plagues have transpired. And I think it's needless to say that enough time had elapsed for both the people and Moses, even despite these great displays of God's power and might, Enough time had passed for the people to wonder if deliverance would ever really be actualized. If it would ever really take place. I wonder if this morning, if you have found yourself in a similar position. You've seen God work in the past. You've seen God work in the present. But yet you're still prone to wonder just like I am still prone to wonder, will deliverance ever occur? But as we've seen through the Exodus narrative, this Exodus story, that what God is doing, that God is doing something that is according to His own exact plans and His own exact timing. Because, as we will see over these next few remaining passages, as we begin to bring our series to a climactic point and also begin to end our series, we're going to see that when Israel finally leaves Egypt, there is not a question that it was by the hand of their God. Not a question. That only God could have brought this deliverance. Did you know that 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 is what God is performing and doing in your life this morning? 
Did you know that God and his infinite sovereignty and wisdom is so orchestrating the plans of your life that at the end of your life you will say, it is only God who has brought me through and is going to carry me home. This is only an act of God. And as we come to Exodus chapter 11, we're going to see that Pharaoh has refused, as we've read at the end of chapter 10, Pharaoh had refused Moses. He refused the God of Israel one final time. And now the time is set for God's final act in the land of Egypt. This is God's final curtain call. This morning we are going to look at this tenth climactic plague. And we're going to view how God redeems His people. How He he brings them out of Egypt and brings them to Himself. We're going to look at this act of redemption of God on, on the part of the people from three different perspectives. You know, you may be sitting in a, in, a, in a living room and you can sit in three different areas of the table or of, uh, at the couch or if you're in the dining room of the table, you can look at a diamond as we've talked in the past and depending on what angle you're at, you see all of these beautiful things. You see the sparkle of that diamond and how it may be one color from one angle and a different color from a different angle. You may look around that room and notice a beautiful picture on one side, notice something else on the other. Well, this morning we are going to look at God's promise of redemption for His people in this Exodus story from three different angles. And the same thing that we're going to come back to throughout all three of these different angles is the truth that you see on the screen this morning. That it is only God who can rescue and redeem. Let's pray. Lord, as we begin this morning, Father, if you are going to work It is going to be your work through your declared word. Father, you've given us the Bible as the source of finding you, of seeing, and as we sung this morning, of beholding our God. Lord, without your word, there is no context, there is no clear revelation in which to behold you. Father, as we look at this redemption that you have brought to Israel, we realize that that it is but a picture of the full redemption that you have brought through your own Son, the perfect Lamb, the perfect sacrifice. And God, as we look at these three different perspectives this morning of redemption, I pray, Lord, that you would stoke a fire in our hearts. Not a fire concerning us or concerning what we could do, but, Lord, a fire concerning what you already have done, what you are doing, and what you promise to do in us 
for all eternity. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. The first angle in which we are going to view redemption from chapter 11 is from the angle of the hope that redemption gives us. The hope of redemption. Because remember, we have just finished the ninth plague. And in verses 27 to 29 of chapter 10, it doesn't look too hopeful. Pharaoh is furious. He says, get out of my face if I ever see you again, you're dead. But in the midst of this trial and difficulty, there is hope. Because our hope, once again, is not founded in circumstances. It's not founded in people. It is found in God. And the hope of redemption that He brings As we come to chapter 11, it's interesting because the first three verses, sort of, uh, uh, the first two verses specifically, are sort of a summary of what God has said in the past. And it's not until verse 4 that we continue the scene that was left off at the end of verse 29 in chapter 10. We have a bit of a parenthesis here. And Moses does this purposefully because he is setting up for us as we read this story to be reminded that God is in complete control here, that our hope is grounded in Him. Look at what verse 1 says. The Lord said to Moses, Yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Now we have to stop right here because where is the hope of redemption? The hope of redemption, and this was, ju- that, this was true for Israel, and it is so true for us today. You know where the hope of our redemption lies? It lies in a promise. This is a promise of complete redemption. Now Jesus has died on the cross. Our sins have been paid in full like we've sung this morning. We can sing, have mercy on me in confidence knowing that our sins have been paid for. But that process of redemption is still at work in our lives. God's redemption is not done with us yet. We still cling to the promise of redemption. That promise is bound in the return of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and His promise to make all things new. We cling to promise. If we are not clinging to the promise of redemption, mark it down, we are not going to have hope in our redemption. So let's look at the promise that was given here. The first aspect is God says to Moses, one plague more I'm going to bring. We see there's one more plague. This plague once again would come upon Pharaoh, upon Egypt. It would not touch God's people. As we will see next week, God would make sure of that through by means of a sacrifice. 
There was one more plague. The end was in sight. There was light at the end of the tunnel. But also, in there being one more plague, the promise that God gives is that there's one final action. This final action, just as Pharaoh had refused over and over and over again, God promises afterward, He will let you go from here. And not only does He say He will let you go from here, but He says this is true because He says when He lets you go. So in other words, it's not if Pharaoh finally lets you go. He will let you go, oh yeah, and when He does, this is, what you're, this is what's going to happen. Do you remember that funny word uh, a couple uh, chapters ago in Exodus? We talked about that word shalach. That word of release, of sending away, of letting go. Let my people go. Moses over and over and over says the command, let my people go. Folks, this is a climactic verse in the story of the Exodus. Because after all of this time, all of the refusal to let the people go, all of the times that this word shalach is used in this Exodus story, finally, God says he's going to do it. God does what he promises. All the way back in Exodus 3.20, God says, I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. There's a lot of chapters in between Exodus 3 and Exodus 11. But God did not forget this initial promise that he gave Moses, not even in Egypt. He gave Moses this promise out in the wilderness, in the mountain, when he was by himself taking care of the sheep. You see, folks, there's a lot of time that passes in our lives. But the promises of God's word always hold true. If you're a parent here this morning, you're you're familiar with the scene that that happens to me a lot that I'll tell Timmy or Isaac or Julia something and then you know the day gets busy and and I totally forget and then they come to me later hey you said we were going to do this you said we you said you were going to do this oh yeah the day got away from me i forgot god's promises are not like that God always fulfills his promises. What promises do we go by in life? It is the promises that are in God's word. There was one final action that would take place, and that was the fulfillment of what God promised. There was this promise would also be a complete promise like we looked at, that there is a promise of complete redemption. At the end of verse 1, he said, not only will Pharaoh let you go, he will drive you away completely. Do you remember all the times Pharaoh balks at, at Moses' request? Okay, go ahead, 
but the children are going to stay. Okay, go ahead, but the animals will stay. No, God says when Pharaoh lets you go, it is going to be a complete driving away of all of you, everything you have. Once again, God's true to his promises. He already told Moses this. In fact, in Exodus 6, verse 1, it says, But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. Same exact phrase. You know what's interesting, by the way, about this phrase, he will drive you away completely. The first time this, that, that word drive you away is used is here in Exodus 6.1. This is the promise of God. And guess what, folks? If, we, if you haven't realized it already, life and circumstances seem to, to contradict the promises of God, does it not? You know what the second occurrence of this, of this word, drive them out, drive them away, where it's found? It's found in chapter 10, verse 11. Pharaoh refuses Moses' request. He's angry, and he says, No, go, the men among you, and serve the Lord, for that is what you were asking. And they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. And you see Moses saying, God, what's going on here? You told me three chapter, four chapters earlier. Not that he said that, literally, but you told me four chapters earlier that he's going to drive us out of the land. But what he's doing is he's driving us, Moses, me and Aaron, away, refusing our request. And then we come to chapter 11, verse 1. God answers that question that I'm sure was on Moses' mind. He says, no, Moses. He will drive you away completely. Just like I said. Are you sitting here this morning, you are doubting the promises of God? Are you doubting that God is truly in control of your life? Are you wondering if God is sovereign even in this situation that you're going through? Folks, rest not upon your feelings, but upon the character of God. That God is bound to his word. This would be a complete deliverance. So the first as we look at this first angle that we have hope in our redemption, we have hope because of the promises of God. But you know what that hope in the promise of God brings? That hope in the promise of God brings action. And, and I don't know about you, but I think that that is where I so often fall short I think that's where we as a church fall short. Are we acting out the hope that we have? Is it evidenced in our reactions in life, in our daily living? 
Look at what verse 2 says. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. You see, the people are to act in correspondence to God's great act. And we will see this in chapter 12, in verse 33 and in verse 36, that when God goes through the land of Egypt and the firstborn sons are killed, that they do exactly what God said. They ask the Egyptians for these items and they give them to them freely you see the people were to act in correspondence to God's great act whenever God works in the Bible you see that mankind is called to action we are not just called to sit idly and say well that's nice oh great one God No, God says, this is what I have done for you. Now, in response to what I have done for you, you go out in confidence. I mean, can you imagine the the, the, the logic before redemption, before God moves uh, uh, through the land of Egypt? Can you imagine what the average Hebrew person would have thought, saying, we're to do what? They're not even giving us straw for our bricks, or uh, straw for our bricks. We're going to ask them for gold? Say what? But you see, the people, number two, are to act not only according to God's great act, but the people are to act because they have fully listened to Moses. Verse 2 says he's to speak this in the hearing of the people. In fact, in Exodus 3, verse 22, this very same, God has already told Moses this in the burning bush. Each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold and jewelry and for clothing, you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. The end of chapter 3, verse 22 says, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. Listen, God has this worked out. Do you notice here in chapter 11, we keep bumping back to what God has already said to Moses? God's got this thing figured out. The people are simply to respond in faith. Are you responding in faith this morning? Are you living out the redemption that God has provided for you? Are you living that out in your boldness for Christ that results are not dependent upon you but you know what if Jesus saved me then maybe he is going to give me opportunity to share my faith with someone else not that they are going to respond because of me but that God will simply use me as an instrument as we're going to talk about a little bit later Are you living out your redemption in your life by saying, you know what? These things in life, they're not worthy of living for. This time that God has given me in my day, 
It is not mine. I am living for a higher calling. But you see, folks, as Moses was a spokesman for God, we have been given a much greater authority than even Moses. We have been given the very word of God from Genesis to Revelation. If we are not hearing the voice of God in the Scriptures, how are we to act? You see, where the people's confidence in going forward and asking these things from the Egyptians, this, this seemingly silly request, until we get to chapter 12. The answer to why this could be done is that the people would be recipients of only what God could provide. Only God could do this. God would provide for His people when the Egyptians give them all of these riches and clothing. You know what God was saying? I'm going to provide for you on your journey through the wilderness to the land I promised you. I am going to provide for you from the most unlikely of sources. Who would thought that the Egyptians would be financing this exodus? Isn't that weird? God is not limited by our own concepts. We limit God so often. You know what, God? If only you took this out of my life, I would be so more effective for you. God, if you just didn't, you just wouldn't have created me to be so shy. Boy, I could be a more effective witness for you. God, if you had just given me this ability or this wiring, or this gifting, boy, then I could really plug in to the local body to make a difference in the name of Christ. Boy, then I could really serve people. If only this played out a little bit differently. Listen, what you're saying is that God, you've got to provide the means and the resources according to my conceptions. And that just ain't happening. God provides here from the most unlikely of sources. <laughs> and once again, this is no surprise. All the way back in Genesis 15, when God makes a covenant with Abraham, he says, I'm going to bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and they will come out with great possessions. Once again, God's sovereignty, his control. So this hope of redemption, this, this hope that manifests itself in promise, and then it brings about action in us as God's people. Thirdly, this, this hope that we have been given, it points us to God's work. As we've even seen in verse 2, we're going to see again in verse 3, God's work on behalf of the people. Why is verse 2 going to come true? Because of verse 3. The Lord gave. 
Doesn't say the people earned. Doesn't say the people deserved even. It says the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. You see, God's work on behalf of His people was that He gave the people favor. That word favor it's the same word that's used in Genesis nine, uh, Genesis uh, in in the the uh, episode with with Noah that Mo, uh, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. You see, it was God who gave this favor, and mark it down that their favor with the Egyptians. You could also translate this word grace. Their grace or favor with the Egyptians was simply a byproduct of their favor that they had with God. And folks, what does Romans 8 tell us? If God is for us, who can be against us? I don't know about you, but I can think of a lot of things that can be against me. It could be things, it could be people, it could be circumstances, it could be worries, it could be whatever it is. But are we constantly reminding ourselves if God is on our side, none of these things will ultimately stand in eternity. The people had favor, and verse 3 goes on to show us that the people had a leader It says, moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of the people. You see, God gave his people Moses. And this man Moses, it's ironic here that Moses was very great in the land of Egypt. Who should be naturally inserted there? It should be Pharaoh was very great in the land of Egypt, right? There's irony here. And even in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of all the people, it is Moses who is exalted, not Pharaoh. You see, God is the one who exalts. Once again, God's grace, His favor. But just as God gave His people Moses... Aren't you blessed? Am I not blessed that a greater Moses has come? A greater Moses to lead us as His people through the wilderness of this life to the promised land of a new heaven and a new earth? You see, Moses, despite all of this exaltation, was flawed. He didn't even get to go into the promised land. But folks, our leader, the greater Moses, he's perfect. He is not only leading the way, but he is fighting and defeating the enemy. So this morning, as we look at this first glare of the diamond of redemption, we find hope. Where's your hope this morning? What are you hoping in? 
But then as we turn that diamond of redemption, we not only see hope, but we see action. And this action that we are going to look at is not our own action. It is the very action of God. You see, redemption screams out at us. It glares out at us like that, like that glare of the diamond that God has acted on behalf of His people. And we read in verses 4 to 8, follow along with me, the scene now comes back to Moses standing before Pharaoh. Okay? And and. This, just, this is a hot scene. This is, this, is, this is a situation of intensity. Pharaoh in verse 28, Get away from me. Take care never to see my face again. The day you see my face, you shall die. Moses responds, As you say, I will not see your face again. Before he leaves, in that anger that we're going to read at the end of the chapter, He has some final things to say. So Moses says to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. You see, what we are reading of in this act of redemption is that this redemption will be accomplished amidst judgment. You see, there is no need for redemption when there is no context of judgment. And that is the message of the gospel, is it not? That there is first bad news that makes the good news so wonderful. We cannot say that God is just love and and all accepting of anything and everything because that is not a truly loving God. You see, specifically, God is going to bring judgment on the firstborn. Verses 4 tells us that it would be in the darkness of the night. It's interesting that in the Egyptian history, there's, there is certain hymns to the god of Aton, who is considered uh, uh, this, one of the sun gods. And let's, let me describe one of these hymns. It says the author desca- describes the dread of night because the sun god has departed to the underworld and is no longer protecting the Egyptians. The sun is gone. Darkness has descended. I like what he says here at the end. For the Hebrews, on the other hand, there is no fear. For he who keeps Israel, Psalm 121.4 says, will neither slumber nor sleep. Yahweh is awake, working and sustaining and protecting his people. Folks, just like what we saw in the ninth plague, God is sovereign both over the light and the darkness. God will bring judgment on the firstborn. The Lord would go out in the midst of Egypt. And then it says, every firstborn, verse 5, in the land of Egypt would die. All the way up to Pharaoh's firstborn son, 
to the servant girl that nobody knows about that's out treading grain. Everyone would experience loss. But here is the, that's the bad news. Where's the good news of redemption? The good news of the gospel. Verses 6 and 7 show us that God would indeed make a distinction between his people and the Egyptians. There shall be, verse 6 says, a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast. And why, did all, why would all of this be so? That you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. There would be certain judgment that would befall Egypt because of their rebellion against God. This judgment would be so great that it said a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt would be heard. You know what's ironic about this great cry? It's the same word for cry found in chapter 3, verse 7 and 9 of God's people crying out because of the harshness of the slavery of the Egyptians. And listen, this is why this is important. Because the Hebrew people cried out. And their God, the one and only true God, the text says in Genesis 3, He heard their cry. And upon hearing their cry, he brought deliverance. What happens to the people of Egypt when they cry out in anguish and in need of deliverance? They are looking to Pharaoh as their God. And how great of a God is Pharaoh in the midst of their desperation? He could offer no help because he himself was affected by this plague. Can I ask you today, what God are you serving? Because when God brings you to your step, your last step of desperation, you're going to cry to that God and that God's going to do nothing for you. The God of the empty bottle has no power. The God of the empty syringe has no power. The God of the material objects, they hold no lasting value. Folks, do do we call ourselves Christians and we are living after the wrong God? It is only the one true God that hears our cry and not only hears it, but he delivers. This deliverance would be so great that Moses says not even a dog will growl against the people. I mean, here you have Pharaoh barking out things throughout this whole story, this whole narrative. (laughs) And I wonder if, if Moses is purposefully demeaning Pharaoh here, saying, not even a dog. Pharaoh thinks he's so great. A dog has more wisdom than Pharaoh. Literally, not even a dog is going to move his tongue at you. You see, 
This redemption amidst judgment shows us in verse 8 that God will humble the nation of Egypt. Verse 8 says, And all these your servants, get this, shall come down to me and bow down to me. You know, the Bible says a soft answer turns away wrath. But there's a place here for righteous indignation. You imagine how, imagine how already mad, hot Pharaoh feels when he says, you, all your servants are going to bow down. All of your servants shall come and bow down to me saying, get out, you and all the people who follow you. Wow. The scene is set. God will humble the nation of Egypt. And this again, and we're going to see glimpses of the gospel again in chapter 12, but what another glimpse of the gospel that in verse 8, remember God is our, or Jesus is the greater Moses, while all of, the, of Pharaoh and his courts are going to bow the knee to Moses and say, get out. Because of our greater leader, Jesus all of the nations, Philippians 2 says, are going to bow the knee to Jesus, confess him as Lord. Listen, when you go out and vote this week, you remember that it's King Jesus that, that holds our destiny that we're concerned about, not any single political leader. All nations will bow the knee to Jesus. This act of redemption, it is redemption in the face of judgment. God will deliver his people. And what makes this redemption special is it is a redemption despite great opposition. Verse 9, it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Once again, even despite this one final warning, there's rejection. Moses and the people of Israel seem to be on the losing side once again. Listen, just like we saw in that, that video this morning of our brothers and sisters in Pakistan who are having to, to dip themselves in the sewer just to, to be able to make some sort of a living. You'd look at them, culture would look at those people and say they are on the wrong side. They are on the losing end. Listen, don't expect in this life to appear to be on the favorable side of things. I think we in America are so complacent that we, that we sometimes think the rest of the world enjoys the things we do. And, and for God's blessing to be on us, everything should be peaceful and hunky-dory and we should be all happy and, and, that, and nothing's going on around us. Listen, that's not the history of God's people. Until the day Jesus returns, we are going to appear to be on the losing side. 
But guess what? Redemption doesn't stop with rejection. Redemption stops with the purposes of God. His purposes will be made complete. Even this rejection, how many times does God have to repeat it? That this is happening, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. God is making himself known, not only to his people Israel, but to foreign nations. That's why the Bible says in places like in Isaiah that all of the nations will one day flock to God. Because God is concerned not of one single race or, or, um, or ethnic background. He is concerned for all people. God is orchestrating both rejection and ultimate redemption for His purposes. And let's take one quick two-minute look at a third aspect of that diamond. When we look at that diamond of redemption, it brings out the glare of hope. It brings out the glare of what God will do on behalf of His people in the context of judgment and salvation. And it will thirdly bring out a glare of the instruments of redemption. You see, folks, it is such a blessing that God allows us not to be authors of salvation, but to take place in that story of redemption to be used by Him. Verse 10 shows us Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh. But folks, what we need to realize is we often get our place out of place in the story of redemption. That we, how many of you, before coming into our study in Exodus, and hopefully this is changing, if not, um, you've either been gone a lot of weeks or haven't been paying attention, the story of Israel's Exodus is not about Moses. Have you gotten a sense of that yet? You see, redemption is not dependent upon God's servants. We could stop and say, wow, Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh. Weren't they great? Weren't they mighty? But what good is it? When you read further in verse 10 that he did not let the people of Israel go. You see, we can say we're going to do this and we're going to do that and we're going to go here and we're going to go there. But if we are left to ourselves, all of those things will be ineffective. God's story of redemption is not dependent upon us. But listen, the text says, that despite all these wonders Moses and Aaron did, which was by the power of God, by the way, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. And he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. You see, if we take away the part the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, we would say, boy, aren't Moses and Aaron great? But it was fruitless. But when we bring God into the equation, we start to see significance here because redemption is entirely dependent upon God. 
You see, that doesn't mean we sit back and say, we're not going to do anything. We're just going to let God do all the work because God does use us. But it is God who is making the difference. One of the problems that we struggle with in our life is we compare Christianity. We compare that to the culture, the business world, the the, the work world in which we live. And what does the culture say to us? It says, for me to make a difference and to be more effective, I've got to climb up the ladder. What does Christianity say? It says, for us to make a difference and to be more effective for God to use us, we've got to climb down the ladder. And boy, do we struggle with that. You see, the worldview of God and the worldview of Egypt clashed. The worldview that we live in and the worldview of the Bible clash. As we see this third glare of the diamond, the instruments of redemption, praise God that He sovereignly will use us to make a difference in this world. But if that's what we're hanging our hat on is us, man, we got the wrong hanger. Be like trying to fit your shirt, guys, on your little kid's hanger. Have you ever tried that? I have. It doesn't work. When we say, God, I desire to be used by you, it is, one, it is a prayer of dependence upon Him. Not ourselves. This morning, as we close this morning, we see once again that only God can rescue and redeem. And I wonder as we go to prayer today, we're not going to sing just because we're out of time this morning, but I wonder as we go to prayer today, ask yourselves, which of those angles of the diamond have you been missing out on? Maybe you'd say, It's all three of those angles because I'm over here looking at this over here. I'm not even looking at the diamond anymore. Have you forgotten your hope? Have you forgotten God's work on your behalf? Have you forgotten that it is not up to you? It is up to God to make a difference. And in response to that, are you going to be like the children of Israel in verses 2 and 3 who say, yes, we will go out boldly because of the boldness of our God? Let's pray.